Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. I think it's been long enough of you all using immutable file system distros that we talk about your experiences. We talked about the concept before, but now I want to hear how you all got on. Yeah, so I, I want to preface this just by saying that I think I speak for all of us when we haven't done the classic, let's boot the distro for a bit and wiggle the mouse and have a look for a few hours. It has been my daily driver, apart from a few things, which we might go into a bit, where I switched to a different machine. But otherwise, every morning when I booted a computer, it was silver blue. And the same for the other two of you? Yep, it's been on my framework. I'm recording with it right now. Yeah, only for my personal stuff. I couldn't use it at work because big corporate. But yeah, for any personal stuff, it's mostly been under silver blue where possible. Okay, it's interesting that you're still using it, Dalton. I got along with it just fine. There have been problems, but... In those cases, I've had to take the terrible, terrible route of doing RPM OS tree. Because sometimes you just got to cheroot into something that's ARM64. <laughs> and that's not something you can do with a flat pack, unfortunately, or toolbox. I don't see that as painful at all. It's, it's just more like the traditional way of installing applications, except you have to reboot. Right. But it just feels a little weird and wrong because like you've got this whole image that gets downloaded and upgraded with the deltas and stuff and then it downloads all these rpms again and reinstalls them and uh, it just doesn't feel quite right but it's how it was made so i guess sure i can use it that way yeah spoiler alert i i am not using it anymore but i did very much enjoy using it but i guess the thing for me is as may become clear in some other way I'm not the biggest fan of GNOME, and for immutable operating systems, you're pretty much stuck there. I started with Keenwhite. I thought, okay, the guys seem to be going off with just Silverblue, the GNOME flavor of Silverblue. I'll try Keenwhite. So I booted up the installer and went through. I did an, an encrypted single boot system. Everything was fine. And then when I rebooted it, I got a bunch of error messages. The default pinned icons on the bottom left, like settings and discover, etc., were blank white icons, like they were missing. And I was like, oh, something's gone wrong there. I clicked the applications menu and no applications were installed. And then <laughs> I clicked uh, system settings and it gave me an error message about KIO client. And then I was like, something's gone seriously wrong. I started Googling and it turns out there's a bug. If you set your time zone to London, it loses the OS tree. And there is a bugzilla issue open. And the maintainer of Keynotes had basically all the files in the user directory are timestamp zero. And that means that only on UTC, there is a problem where KDE might be converting the date into a local zone and getting confused. And basically all the applications disappear. So I then had to go and use Silverblue at first, although I did manage to try Keynote for a bit, which I might come back to. But yeah, I ended up in Silver Blue Gnome as well. You mentioned that you used an encrypted file system. I felt that was a little weird that if you do encryption, it is full disk encryption. Because if we're doing this immutable thing the right way, we should be able to have all of the immutable bits outside of the encrypted root file system. As long as we're verifying that it's correct the way it was last time, we should just be able to boot it. We don't need to take that performance penalty. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, I, I was running this on like a second gen i3 Dell Latitude with only 120 gigabyte SSD and eight gigs of RAM. And 
it was absolutely fine. I didn't notice any kind of performance penalties or anything like that. The machine was originally dual booting and they don't support that. I've since found out you can actually do that, but you have to give it its own EFI partition um, to do that. But yeah, the documentation basically says at this point to single boot. But yeah, it, it, I didn't notice it, you know, so it sets up ButterFS uh, sub volumes and uh, looks and that was all fine. Yeah. So I also ended up on Silverblue and I think it was absolutely fine. Similar to you, Chris, I just did wipe my entire disk, full disk encryption. This was on a bit more of a bond machine. So it was a seventh gen mobile i5. And I had a fairly reasonable experience, to be honest with you. I don't know if you guys came across this. When I loaded Software Catalog initially, it said, unable to install English is not supported. And I was like, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting bug. English simplified was fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, um, and then immediately I was presented with what felt a bit like a mobile operating system. There was a big list of updates, including a system update. I clicked install and then it said reboot to apply. So it felt a bit like Chrome OS as well. Like if you ever dig into the settings menu of Chrome OS, you can see the update happening where it's lining up the next immutable image so that when you reboot, it boots from that, but it's not touching the current one that you're running. So it felt quite similar to that. I really like that as well. I was just able to restart to update and sometimes it would tell me to do it. I was a little bummed that it wouldn't notify me to download because sometimes I'm in a situation where I really don't want downloads happening while I'm working but eh, it's future improvements, maybe. The installation process and getting the system stood up was quite good. Then I was like, okay, it's quite bare bones. There's like the GNOME set of apps and Firefox, which is layered into the immutable image. So I was like, okay, I'll install some flat packs. I found Software Catalog very flaky at doing that. I don't know whether that was just me. No, it seems a little flaky. Yeah, it wouldn't do it. It would fail. It would go back to the beginning. It would say install again. So I dropped to the terminal and then realized that there's like no Flathub by default. So you get the Fedora Flatpak repository and the KDE apps repository, but there's no Flathub, which means lots of apps don't appear until you manually add Flathub as a repository. But after I did that, I went to install using the terminal and I would often get two or three sources for the flat pack, which I guess is what people complain about the Snap Store for. But I was trying to think like, I guess you're meant to use the GUI if you're a new user, but I just found it a little bit like there's two identical version numbers from two different sources. What What's going on? It was a bit disorientating. Yeah. And then I guess it's just which source do you trust the most, right? <laughs> so yeah. it becomes a bit difficult. Um, I did just use the UI to install flat packs for the most part. So I didn't really come across that, if I'm honest. No, I didn't either. I almost entirely used GNOME software. Yeah, so maybe it's just because, as I've discussed before, like I, I like to use terminal <laughs> commands to install software. I then moved on, and obviously there's no Google Chrome, which I did want to install. I managed to get it up and running in the end because there's a couple of choices. There's a beta flat pack, so you just enable the FlatHub repository for beta applications, and you can also layer it in with RPM OS tree, and then it will be updated as part of that. Yeah, I just went the RPM OS tree route for getting Chrome installed because there was something about enabling a beta application repository on a machine I was actually going to use that didn't feel right. Although that said, I guess layering it into RPM OS tree could have had its own set of problems. It didn't for me, but 
it was fine. I feel like any time I had to use RPM OS tree to install stuff, I did feel a little bit dirty for doing that because then it's like... <laughs> My pristine system is broken. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's this pristine system that's that's been built and curated and then I'm going and adding stuff to it. But once I got over that and realized that that's what I'm doing all the time on my Ubuntu machine. It was absolutely fine. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash linuxafterdark and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been using Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash linuxafterdark Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash Linux after dark. Once I added FlatHub, I found pretty much all of the GUI applications. Um, I'm already sort of using a lot of Flatpaks on Ubuntu anyway because of various things that everyone talks about. I just find Flatpaks run more quickly, and I would rather use Flatpak than add an external repository or a PPA if that's the choice that's laid in front of me, or, or compile from source, you know, those kind of things. But yeah, generally, that was quite good. I, I, I know there's been a lot of chatter around Flatpak in the last few weeks and various blog posts and stuff, but I find it to be an adequate solution. I, I One of the reasons I might not have stuck with Silverblue in the long run is I'm not sure I'm ready to be all of the user space applications are Flatpaks at the moment, which kind of brings me on to toolboxes, which is one of the things I found to be very cool on Silverblue. I really did like that. I started looking into it and then I was like, wow, this is a bit different than anything else I've ever done like this. It's not quite, it's like the best bits of all the other solutions I've used, like um, LexD, LexC, Docker containers, Podman containers. It just ties them together in a way that feels like you're just jumping into something that has your shell in it. And that enabled me to not have to use RPM OS tree at points, which I did like. And also you can pull different operating systems into it as well. So that was one of the real positives of this for me. And in fact, I have installed this tool called DistroBox by a guy called Luca Di Maio, which lets you use the same workflow on Ubuntu and other distributions and ties it together. And you can choose to use Podman or Docker in the background. Um, so I, I kind of took that with me after I stopped using Silverblue as a daily driver. Right. My workflow was built more around devices and machines than containers. So this was this was a new paradigm for me, as much as everyone tells me that I should, really should learn how to write a Docker file. Being able to just have like, this is my Ubuntu and this is my Ubuntu, but I have tainted it with UbiPorts things. <laughs> and this is my Fedora box has been really nice. And just being able to run graphical applications from any of those is class it's so good yeah that was really i really liked that when i found out that i could spin up a toolbox and run graphical applications from within inside it and then if i wanted to create an alias so that 
I could just bring that up without even having to do toolbox run, just replace that if I didn't have it installed on the main system. I really like that because previously my experience has been with snap packages and flat packs and I've broadly divided it into if it's command line, I use snaps. If it's GUI, I use flat pack. Yeah, I think maybe I'm just tainted a bit by having worked around this for so long. Any command line tool I use for my day job is in a container. And that's mainly because at work I'm using a Mac and quite often a lot of those tools are outdated or if it's for production, it's something that I don't really want to install from Homebrew. So I've always ended up you know, doing things like running Terraform inside a container or for example, my personal site, which is built with Hugo. I do all the builds for that inside a container. So there's this kind of clean environment, I guess that that stuff happens in. So I could see the appeal of using a toolbox for it, but am I going to go to the effort of rebuilding all the existing stuff that I've got when I can just use Docker? Probably not. There's a blog article recently by Timothée Ravier, I think that's how you say that, who's a core OS engineer at Red Hat, but he's also the Kinoite maintainer. So on that bug I mentioned with Kinoite, it's him who, who mentioned about the timestamp of zero and the bug. And he's written a good blog article called Fedora Keenwhite Silverblue Dev's Guide. And it goes step by step through how he uses it as a developer with toolboxes. But obviously, it's kind of his pet. So he's going to be very positive about it. But I find it quite interesting because I was wondering whether developers would be drawn, because that's not what I do necessarily, and whether that's attractive. But it sounds like for you, Dalton, it, it definitely was, right? After getting through getting VS Code as a flat pack and getting it broken out of the flat pack sandbox, which is the first hurdle, everything basically works fine. You can put your toolbox in the terminal so it seems like it's fine. I don't do a lot of debugging inside of VS Code. That I've heard makes a lot of trouble for people where they need to run different debuggers within the flat pack sandbox. I don't have that problem, so. As far as I can tell, it just kind of works. And if I need anything else, I open a separate GNOME terminal and pop open a toolbox. Yeah. So the one experience I had, which maybe goes against that, is because I've been messing about with Postmarket OS on devices that are sort of partially working and you really have to re run the edge channel. You rely on PM Bootstrap for that. And that just doesn't work very well because it needs such low level access to the system. So I found some instructions specifically for Silverblue, but they didn't work because Fastboot didn't have the correct permissions. I tried inside a toolbox. It didn't have access to proc. It didn't work outside of a toolbox with RPM OS tree because of open SSL issues. And I was, I just had to fall back to my old daily driver where I could just pull it from GitHub and run it with uh, sudo and then it worked and i think if i was working <laughs> on postmarket os i would be banging my head against the wall at that point and um i had a similar experience with the uh, nc spot which i use which is like a terminal client written in rust and n curses and popey snapped it up so on ubuntu i just install his snap but on this i had to basically build it myself and on the machine was quite old it took a surprisingly long amount of time to create like this 27 megabyte binary which worked perfectly once i pulled it from crates and compiled it and everything but one of the downfalls is, is that you will come across like 
low level access requirements. Another one was my printer, which is really old, doesn't support air print. And so I needed to install drivers. And when you get to those things, it starts to fall apart quite quickly. But I would concede that like, these are starting to be edge cases because a lot of people have wireless printers that support AirPrint. Therefore, they are quite easily compatible as long as you're on the network, you can just add them. So I am pushing the boundaries a little bit. But on like a non-immutable install, that's all easily worked around in various ways. Is that kind of a good place to go with it? Like there are all of these different edge cases that all of us as Linux users have that having this single immutable thing is kind of weird in ways that it isn't on a phone, which is all of the software is designed to work in this containerized or quieter, you don't touch the system way. Well, that's what I was going to ask you all. We spent a whole episode talking about this in theory. Now you've all lived it in practice. Have your opinions changed? Not as far as mobile goes. I still think that at least for Ubuntu Touch, we can keep going with it because it's designed not to be pushed as hard. Whereas a Linux distribution, at least for us, at least for the people I think would be using Fedora, I don't know, it seems like a bit of a tough sell now. I would say there's some things which I'd really love to be able to take with me. So I think I'm on the whole I'm more positive than I was when we talked about it in concept. One of the things that really impressed me was I decided there must be a way for me to run Kinoite and make it work. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just set the time zone to the US. So I set it to New York and yeah, it worked. But because I'd already installed Silverblue GNOME, the GNOME part of it is an immutable system image. And it's possible to what they call rebase, which sounded a bit like freebasing. So it was all very Richard Pryor. But um, <laughs> so, but um, yeah, you can rebase the operating system. And this is what they call staging a deployment. So I basically flipped to, you know, there's a, quite an array of choices. You can install Silverblue, Kinoite, various architectures and various versions from Fedora 27 through 35. And so I nominated it and thought, you know, what's the worst that could, that could happen? I break the system. But I flipped into Kinoite in a US time zone and it worked surprisingly well in a way that I've always been a bit scared of doing on Ubuntu because I know it's possible, you know, you can install a meta package, change your desktop environment, but I'm always worried that there's kind of cruft left behind. And I was impressed by the speed and almost how clean it was to switch the underlying OS tree image and change your desktop environment. And it really worked really, really well. I only came a cropper because I booked visitor parking for someone and I changed the plasma clock to UK, but the booking portal took the system clock to start the parking, which was the middle of the night <laughs> because it thought I was in New York. But um, yeah, that, that I found quite impressive to being able to flip those around so quickly and so cleanly. And I was just in a plasma desktop, quite an up-to-date one. That is impressive, and I'd like to be able to do that in future. Yeah, I think for me, I could probably use it full-time. The main blocker I had was, I mean, like when you started saying, Chris, that you'd had the problems with Kinoite, it obviously put me off trying the KDE version, but I could probably use it full-time if there was a desktop available that wasn't GNOME, because GNOME just it isn't for me. That's where I struggled the most, but I think because of using a Mac day-to-day -day for work, 
have worked around a lot of these issues of having limited access to the root system, which is, you know, it's part of the reason I do a lot of my work in containers is because I've then got access to something that's somewhat familiar. So I could probably switch to it and get everything I need to do done unless I needed something particularly low level, but that doesn't come up that often for me because I'm not messing with hardware. I think the main problem is just that immaturity bit of I need to get a different desktop environment, I need to rebase, it doesn't work in this time zone, I think would really irk me after a little while. But if those things worked okay and I could get a desktop environment that I was somewhat familiar with and can get on with, then yeah, I think I could probably keep it around. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I didn't spend long with it, so I don't want to do it in injustice, but I did have a go at microOS as well. And immediately when I loaded the documentation, GNOME is labeled beta and Plasma is labeled alpha in red capital letters. <laughs> and they're not advised to use it. So at the moment, the immutable desktop, leaving aside Nixos, which is slightly different, but these, I think microOS and, and uh, Silverblue and to a certain extent, Endless OS, occupies similar thought space of the desktop operating system and they're all very gnome focused and if you're not particularly attracted to using that as your daily driver it does leave you out a little bit at the moment hopefully that will change yeah that's the thing i'm hopeful in another six months that i might be able to revisit it and see how i get on but for now i i find it very difficult to work in that desktop environment day to day so it sounds like it's not quite the present but it could well be the future. Yeah, I'm planning to continue using it. I got all the UDEV stuff working, so Chris's fastboot stuff isn't a problem for me anymore, so I'll keep using it. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Show at linuxafterdark.net if you want to get in touch in the meantime. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I'm Gary. And I've been Dalton. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> <laughs>